Today I'm going to conclude uh, the series of messages that I've entitled Rebuilding Your Broken World. The book of Ezra teaches us about a period of time in Bible history where the Jews, having been in exile for some 70 years, were permitted to return to their homeland for three reasons. To rebuild their city, to rebuild their temple, and to rebuild their lives. The temple has been rebuilt. But Ezra knows that the greatest need is the rebuilding of faith in the life of the people of God. And as I read Ezra chapter 9 verses 1 and 2, I think you will immediately see the problem that faced Ezra and his people. Ezra chapter 9 verse 1. When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. For you see, in spite of the fact that the Jews still retained their religious identity as God's chosen people, and in spite of the fact that they had rebuilt the temple and even gone to the temple to worship God, many of these Jews were not right with God. Their heart was far from Him. And I'm reminded today of how easy it is for us, you and me, to show up at church on Sundays and to go through all the motions of being spiritual and religious people, but in our hearts, we're not right with God. What these people needed is what we need today. Revival and spiritual restoration. And that's where all of this is going, restoration. But what has to happen before we get there is sometimes difficult and painful and very challenging. But let me tell you something, church. The destination to restoration is a beautiful thing. There are five important intersections on the road to restoration. And at each one of these five intersections, we have to keep right. I'm going to keep saying that. We have to keep right. When I say keep right, I'm talking about we have to make the right decision and do the right thing. And the first intersection on the road to restoration is called conviction. One day, some of the leaders came to Ezra with some very alarming news. Many of the Jews, including some of the leaders, had been unfaithful to God. And they gave this report here in Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. I'm going to read some of those verses again. I just read to you, this time out of the NIV. The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. And then he lists this long name or list of different nations around them. They were all interrelated. They were the Ites, the Ite brothers, along with the Egyptians thrown in there. And the verse goes on to say, They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and also for their sons. 
and have mingled, they've mingled the holy race of the holy seed with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have actually led the way in this unfaithfulness to God. Now, here's what we know about Ezra. Ezra is a mighty man when it comes to the Word of God. He, he was a scholar. He was brilliant knowing the Word of God. And as a result of Ezra's faithful proclamation, that is, his preaching and teaching of God's Word, some of the people came under conviction. And they came to Ezra and they told Ezra what the problem was. Let me do a quick time out and say from the very beginning, we must know that there is not a single one of these steps that we need to take on the road to restoration without the help of God. We can't take them without the help of God. And it starts right here with conviction. Unless God makes us aware of the fact of our own sin, unless God awakens inside of us the fact that we have messed up and that we have sin in our lives, we will never seek Him for restoration. And God awakens us by His Word and by His Holy Spirit. And it's my prayer that as I keep preaching and God's Spirit keeps ministering to you, He would awaken inside of you whatever it is, whether it be a thing or a relationship or a habit that is coming between you and Him. Maybe it's your skeleton in your closet. And He's going to bring that thing to your mind this morning. He's bringing it to the forefront of your life. And when God does that, we need to keep short accounts with God. In other words, when He convicts us of something in our life that is not right, we need to do something about it. Immediately, we need to take care of that. Now, I'm sure that the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem didn't wake up some morning, let's say it's a Tuesday morning, and they just decided that Tuesday morning, you know what, I'm going to completely throw off all of my faithfulness that I've had through the years to God, and I'm going to go back and start living like a reprobate. Because you don't do that. You don't wake up just one morning having lived a godly life for weeks or months or years, and then just one morning wake up and say, you know what, I think I'm going to go out and be a sinner again doesn't happen that way. It, it's called drifting from God. Okay? They drift fish, they fish fishing, they, they drift in car racing, but you can drift spiritually in your life. And it doesn't just happen overnight. It is a slow process of making one bad decision after another, one choice at a time, one day at a time, one relationship at a time, and then then you wake up and realize, you know what? I've drifted away from God. That's what's happened here. It's been a slow process. They've drifted from God. What did they do? Well, it's very specific. They intermarried with pagan nations around them. So what about this matter of intermarriage? This was a direct violation of the law of God revealed in Exodus and Deuteronomy. It is very evident that these people had not been faithful to hear and obey the Word of God. Because let me tell you, it is very clear in the Old Testament that the nation of Israel was not to intermarry. Now in our culture, racial and ethnic intermarriage is common. But here in Ezra, we're looking at something that is a very unique biblical situation. 
the nation of Israel was in a covenant relationship with Almighty God. They were a holy race, chosen by God. God had chosen this insignificant little nation as the people through whom He would display His glory to the nations. God had elected the Jewish nation to carry His revelation to be a light to the whole world. But what if, instead of being a witness to the nations, they compromised? And they gave in. And they became just like all the pagan nations around them. God knew that would happen if they started intermarrying with the pagan cultures around them. If a Jewish man took a pagan wife into his home, she would bring along with her her past, her culture, and her idols. And you know how it is once you get into a marriage and into a home. What's his becomes hers. What's hers becomes his. And God knew that would happen. Their hearts would be turned away from God. And they would start worshiping these pagan idols. And if the true worship of the people of God is contaminated, the testimony of that same God would be compromised. Now church, listen to me. Wake up if you've drifted to sleep. This has absolutely nothing to do with racism. It has everything to do with the spiritual integrity of the people of God. These are the covenant people of God. God has chosen them and set them aside. God is not going to sit back idly and just watch them drift off into sin. He loves them too much. And church, listen to me. When Jesus Christ saved us, God called us to Himself. And we are to be a unique, distinct, and holy people. We are His people. We're not like the world. We're not like we once were. We are now a part of God's family. We are God's people. We are unique. We are separate. And we don't live like the rest of the world. And when we start drifting off back to our old ways, God is going to convict us about that. Titus chapter 2 verse 14 says, Christ gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for Himself a people that are His very own. We should be eager to do what is good and what is right. Guys, let me tell you, this is our high calling. And maybe, maybe I told the first service after I finished, and I'm thinking about it now, maybe this is not the, the, the best sermon I could preach on Pastor Appreciation Day. <laughs> I realize that, all right? But, I'm, I, you know, I just give them like I get them, all right? But we, we, need to, we need to be warned. We need to wake up to the fact that we are God's people. And as God's people, we rise above the world that we live in. We are different, and we have to act different. Anything that falls short of that should bring conviction to our hearts. And again, I'm going to point it out. Right now, if there, if there is something in your life right now that shouldn't be there, a habit, a skeleton, a relationship, right now, I know how God works right now. His Holy Spirit is speaking that into your mind. You know. You know. He's convicting you. 
So at this intersection, we need to keep right if we are to continue on the road to restoration. Now, the second intersection is what I'm calling brokenness. And again, we've got to keep right. A person can be convicted without being broken. A person is often convicted about their sin and their guilt, yet they are too stubborn or too proud to allow that to break them before God. Brokenness says, you know what, I can't go on like this any longer. And you're broken before God. We see this in Ezra's life, verse 3 of chapter 9. When I heard this, he said, when I heard about the sin of God's people, I tore my tunic and my cloak, I pulled hair from my head and also from my beard, and I sat down appalled. Now, this is not a show he's putting on. He's, he's not being just ultra-dramatic. No, these were all demonstrations of brokenness in the Old Testament. But it is clear that Ezra's heart is shattered. It's broken over all of this. These were all outward demonstrations of inward brokenness. The tearing of his coat and his garment. The pulling out. I better not do that because I don't have a whole lot left, all right? But the, can you imagine? the? Have you ever pulled out any hair from your head? No, you're too smart for that, right? I hit my head yesterday when the family was out. I was, I was rewiring some things in my house, and, and I was up. I don't know why I'm telling you this, but I was up under the TV unit, and I raised it up real fast, and there's a, there's a board that goes across there, and it knocked me silly, man. I was just I was dazed. I was just kind of, I was floating around. I thought, oh, my lens, that hurts my head. In the shower this morning, I was shampooing my hair. <laughs> And I hit that spot and I thought, oh, my lens, that hurts. In spite of the pain that Ezra felt, he was yanking globs of hair out of his head and his beard. He was appalled at what was happening in his church. Look at verse 4. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. A couple of words or phrases stick out to me. First is the word appalled. We read it twice. It means he was astonished. He was stunned. He was shocked. I mean, he couldn't believe what was going on. And then the phrase that appears at the beginning of verse 4 Everyone who was convicted trembled at the words of the God of Israel. Understand the scenario here. that They realized they were living in sin, that the church, the people of God, had open, unconfessed sin. And when they compared that sin with what the Word of God says, it caused them to tremble. Made me ask the question, is, is this our response? to sin and evil in our lives and in our world. And just to be honest, it's not. Is it? I don't know if it's because we've just become used to it, we've become cold to it, we are callous to it. I, I don't know what the deal is, but I mean, it, 
We turn on the TV and we hear the reports of the blatant sin that's going on, not only in the world, but in our own country. And in our own state. Then if we start looking real close, we see the blatant sin in our own family and in our own life. It should make us shudder. It should make us tremble. Dietrich Kinder in his commentary on Ezra says this, Ezra has a high sense of the glory that they had betrayed, the glory of God that they had betrayed, and he could not be reconciled to what they had become. We could say that about our country, America, couldn't we? How far we've drifted. But you know what? I can look at a whole lot of our lives, people that, that have come through this church in the 17 years that I've been here who have drifted away. Can I, can I just be comfortable with the fact that a person can accept Jesus as their Savior, live for the Lord for an extended period of time, and then drift away from God, from His people, from the Word, from the fellowship, and go back out into sin and live comfortably that way? Am I okay with that? Am I okay with the fact that you are living in sin? Absolutely not. I mean, it should break our heart and cause us to tremble. The great revivalist Roy Hessen said, to be broken is the beginning of revival. It is painful. It is humiliating. But it's the only way. It is the only way. So when we come to the intersection of conviction, we need to keep right through the intersection of brokenness and that leads us to the intersection of confession. And again, at this intersection, we've got to keep right. This is all about, confession is all about dragging sin out of our own closet and bringing it into the light of God. Whether it's the sin of attitudes or unholy relationships or sinful speech or, or whatever it is. It's about bringing our sin into the light before God. Here's the deal. God sees into the darkness of our own hearts and our own lives. We can, we can trick everybody. We can fool the people that we live with at home, our own family. We can sometimes even fool ourselves but we can't fool God. He sees into the deep crevices of our own lives and hearts. And, and we've, we've got to be real. I mean, really, who in the world do you think you're fooling anyway? The bottom line for all of us in this room is the same. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Johnny's got all the little kids back there. We worship workers have all the little infants and babies and young people back there. So I know who's out here, teenagers and adults. And you have lived long enough that you've got a whole lot of these. It's just the fact of the matter. We've, we've, we've got it in our life. And to break free from all of this, to have restoration, to be able to lay down at night, as Matt talked about on your pillow, when nobody else is around, and to be able to peacefully go to sleep, you've got to be restored to God. Restoration and recovery waits for us to 
fully obey God and to bring all the dark things in our life into the light of God's grace. Notice what Ezra does and what Ezra says in verse 5. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from myself a basement with my tunic and cloak torn. I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God, and I prayed. Now when I read that, I made a notation. What a great pattern for confession. To get on your knees and to spread out your hands to God. Okay, That's what brokenness is all about. And then he prayed. What, what in the world do you pray when you find yourself at this intersection? Conviction of your sin, brokenness over your sin. What do you say to God? What, what does a real prayer of repentance look like? We have it in verse 6. On his knees with his hands spread to God, he said, oh, oh my God. I am too ashamed and too disgraced to even lift my face to you. Oh my God. Because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. This is a remarkable prayer for a couple of reasons. Notice that he includes everyone in this prayer of confession. Ezra had not been the one who sinned, but yet it was his people, it was his church, it was his family who had sinned. So he says, us, we. He includes everyone. This is corporate repentance. Because here's the deal. My sin is not just my sin. My sin affects everybody else. Your sin is not just your sin. Your sin affects a lot of people. And it begins with the people who are closest to you and loves you the most. And it spreads even further than that. It affects your family. It affects your family name. And you know what? If, listen to me. If you, if you are a member of a church, your sin ultimately affects the entire church. Especially if we have a whole bunch of these rattling around in our closet. I've pastored for over 30 years now, several different churches, been here for 17 years. I, I would never say anything bad about this church. It's a great church, great people. You know what? I, for, it, for any church, no matter who the church is, for any church, there, there is absolutely, no, we won't know until we get to heaven what could have happened in certain churches or locations, what could have happened if the church members, the people who said they were Christians and said they we we will never know what could have happened in local churches if the church members would have just lived their lives right. I'm telling you, listen to me, your hidden sin, your unconfessed habits are not only a detriment to you in bringing you down and separating you from God, they are a detriment to the future and the blessings of this church. I mean, what a dreadful day to have to stand before God and He say, you know what, I really could have blessed that church and used that ministry, but because of your sin that you wouldn't deal with, I couldn't bless that church. 
You may think I'm full of it saying that, but it's the God-honest truth. It affects us all. So, when we come to the intersection called confession, we need to keep right. And if we stay on that road towards restoration, we're going to come to another very important intersection called repentance. Here is where the actual changes begin to appear in the behavior of God's people. And again, we have to make sure that we keep right here. Reform and restoration does not happen without repentance. Watch how it plays itself out in chapter 10, verse 2. Then Shekinah said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there's still hope for Ezra, for Israel. Oh, how we need to hear this. Church, listen to me. In the midst of our mess, there is still hope. There's hope for you. There's hope for America. There's hope for our church. Verse 3, Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. And guys, here is the heart of repentance. That little phrase, let it be done according to the law. In the New Testament, the word repentance literally means to change the mind. And that's where it begins. It's a change of mind, but it doesn't just stop there. It involves a resolve to change our lives. Because that's what repentance is. Repentance means to change. And here's how it works. The Bible tells us that the law of God brings us to the knowledge of sin. That's why the law was given. We have to understand how we trespass and how we sin. The law gives us that. It, it tells us don't do this because if you do this, you're breaking the law of God. You're sinning. That sin in turn drives us to the Savior. Because we can't save ourselves. We can't even clean up the messes we've made with our own life. We need the Savior to do that. Repentance is a turning away from something and a turning to the one who alone can save us. It's not enough just to be convicted, to be broken, and to confess. You've got to change your life. You've got to turn away from that thing. You can't keep going back and doing the same old thing you've been doing. If God forgives you, He, forg he cleanses. It's all gone. But you can't go, it's kind of like a dog, the Bible says. I know this is gross, but listen, it's like a dog returning to its own vomit. Have you ever seen a dog do that? Makes me want to vomit, just thinking about it. And God is saying, that's, that's what we do. When, when, we, when we ask for forgiveness and we turn away from it, and then we go right back to that same, it's just like a dog returning to its own vomit. No, repentance says, I'm going to, move from that. I'm going to turn from that. I'm going to do an about face from that. And I'm going to walk away from it. Now the resolution to this matter in Ezra chapter 9 and 10 was this. These men of Israel, the holy people of God, who had married pagan women, had acted unfaithfully to the law of God. We've already established that. They had broken God's law. 
repentance for them meant that they had to send these wives and these children away. For some of them, it meant they also had to return to their Jewish wives that they had divorced to marry their pagan wives. What a mess. What a mess. But we're, we're pretty good at making them. Now, I don't, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know exactly what this sending away means. But scholars caution us about making the leap that God here is sanctioning divorce because He's not. Whatever it is, whatever this sending away is, it is making a clean break with the past. It is separating themselves from their sinful past. There is no question about it. These were drastic measures that these people were taking. But you know what? Sometimes sin is so grievous that drastic measures are the only means of getting back on the right path. And what you see happening over the next few verses is a very systematic way of repenting of sin. It was going to take some time because, I mean, this... this this was just a, a, a weave of, of mess. And it was going to take some time to take care of it. But you know what? They were committed to make things right with their God. So along the way, there are important intersections. And at every one of those intersections, we have to keep right. That is, we have to do the right thing. And if we do the right thing at each intersection, it will lead us to restoration. My last point of my last message in this series. In fact, all the messages that I've preached in the book of Ezra leads to this last point, and that is restoration. Because there's, that's what we need. I mean, that's what you need. In order for your broken world and your broken life to be made right, you have to be restored to God. Beginning in Ezra chapter 10, verse 5, we see that a proclamation was issued for all the Jews to assemble at Jerusalem. A word, was, an edict was given. You show up at Jerusalem on this particular date, and within three days, everyone had gathered. And let me tell you, it was a solemn moment. It's pretty solemn in here right now, but it was even more solemn in Jerusalem that day. They all knew why they were there. God was calling them on the carpet. They all knew they were going to have to deal with their own sin and the sin of their nation. But along with that, there was a downpour of drenching cold rain. Kind of miserable to be out in the rain, unless you're like at a football game, enjoying it. I don't know. But they weren't enjoying it. it was, the Bible says they were shivering. They were shaking. I think there's two reasons. Not only were they cold and wet, but inside they were shaking a little bit too. Look at verse 16. This is what it came to. So the exiles did as was proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate all the cases. And by the first day of the first month, 
they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. It took months to deal with this. But every single person was dealt with. Every single sin was brought to light. I, I just had a thought, what if what if we what if we were able to do that on the big screen today? Everybody's hidden sins were listed. I, I don't know how you would respond, but I know what happened here in Ezra. There was accountability. Because you know what? We don't need to be laughing at each other's sins. We don't need to be going, ha ha, they're getting what they deserve. Ha ha. We don't need to just shrug it off and say, ah, that's just the way they are. That's the way their family was. That's the way they were before they supposedly got saved. No. Because that's taking sin lightly. And it, honestly, it's saying it's okay. They're just that way. They're given to that. They're predisposed to that. No, let me tell you, sin is a choice. It's a choice. You choose to sin. We should be appalled at not only our sin, but others. And there was no one in this assembly who said, you know what? You know what, Ezra? That ain't none of your business! Or, hey dude, if I want to live that way, you know what? I have the right to live that way. You don't have the right to tell me how to live. I can do what I want to do. That's the way we are as Americans. Honestly, am I being brutally honest or what? That's the way we are. We think we've earned the right to say that. You know what the problem is? That's drifted into the church. But that's not what's happening in Ezra. There is a holy sense of accountability to the congregation of God's people. It was going to take some time, but they were bound and determined that they were going to make things right. And what you see happening here is that one of the greatest, listen to me, one of the greatest revivals in all of the Bible erupted because the people of God did the right thing and they got their hearts right with God. That's what revival, that's what restoration is all about. It's when you decide, you know what? I've drifted long enough. I have listened to the lies of the devil long enough. My life is not better because of these sins. It's worse. So what I'm going to do is make things right with God. And let me tell you, when you do that, the, the well on the inside just kind of bursts. And all of a sudden, the flow of God is coming through your life. And you have an abundance of mercy and grace and forgiveness and love, and your life is changed. So here's the path to restoration. Let me tell you, it's not easy. It's not easy dealing with this stuff. 
But who are we fooling anyway? It needs to be dealt with. It's not easy, but the destination is worth it. I told the first service people I had I'd, I'd written about two or three different conclusions to my sermon. I had several pretty cool stories I was going to tell you, but very dramatic. I just scratched all of them. Because this doesn't need to be dramatic. This needs to be real. I'm glad that I'm not the judge. We have the judge standing up here today, Steve. He's a great judge. Sometimes I just, I just, I just stand in, in awe of that. I, I would hate to be a judge, especially the judge. I'm glad I haven't been given that job. So I can't look into your heart. I don't. I don't know if that's better. But I can look into my heart, and I know that I've had a whole lot of these rattling in my closet. And I know that if I'm ever going to be the best person that I could possibly be and the man that God has called me to be. I'm going to have to deal with all this. If God convicts me, my heart's going to have to be broken. I'm going to have to confess to Him my sins and repent. Turn away from When I do that hard stuff, then restoration is There's no obstruction between me and God. You talk about the ultimate high, that's it, man. Being right there with God. Living with Him and praying. And having his perfect peace in my life. And I tell you, that's what I want. That's what I'm striving for. Do you want it? I'm going to ask that you bow your heads and close your eyes. We've spent six weeks talking about rebuilding your broken world. Time to stop talking about it, and it's time to do something.